So as we have talked about, our God is the exceedingly good God who is wise in all that He is and all that He does, and He has ordered His church. He has formed His church as He knows is best. We, we do not create the church. We do not order it as, as we feel like it should be ordered. We are to follow what He has done. And then He instructs all of us who confess Jesus as our Lord, and He tells us how we are to live together in this church, and He tells us how we are supposed to live together based on the purposes that He has given, on how He's ordered the church. And so we've spent three weeks in this series on the family of God, and we have been seeking so far to increase our knowledge and our understanding of how God has brought His church into order. We've spent three weeks trying to see how has God formed His church. And then from this point on and the rest of this series, if the Lord allows, think about nine weeks, every week we are going to look at His instructions to the church. How He has told us we are to live. But those instructions are based on how He's ordered everything. How He's formed everything. And so I want you to continually go back to that foundation of what we've learned in the first three weeks. I want you to continually remember that because we're not just giving these instructions in a vacuum. I mean, God could do that. He could just say, do this because I'm God and I said do it and we should do it. But God's instructions to us are based on how He's ordered things, how He's created things and how He tells us they are supposed to work. So I want you to think about the instructions that He gives to the church in that way. And so I I do ask you to go back to those first three messages. If you have missed any of them, I encourage you to go back and listen to them on our app or our website. If you have already heard them, I still encourage you to go back to them. You can use that one-page study guide that I'm sending on Mondays. It's a one-page guide to the sermon the day before. and You can print that out and use it to remind yourself of what God has said in those messages. But the reason for that is because we want to tie these instructions that He is giving us to how He has ordered His church. In your notes, there is a five-line summary that I have given for essentially the first three weeks of this series. Here's the five-line summary. You'll probably see this fairly often from this point on. But this is a summary of what we've learned in the first three weeks. When Christ saves us, we are received into an eternal fellowship with the Father, Son, and Spirit. And our call is now to abide with Christ living from His life and experiencing power in prayer. And this call is not just as individuals, but it is as a whole group whose health is dependent on each part functioning properly. That is a summary of what we've studied so far. So Father, I ask this morning that You will deal bountifully with Your servants today and that we might live to keep Your Word. I pray that as we just asked in song, You would open our eyes and that we would behold wondrous things out of Your Scriptures today. I pray that Your testimonies would be our delight and our counselors. I pray that You would set our hearts free today from sin and You would enlarge our hearts with affection for Your Son, Jesus, and You would let us run in the way of Your commands as we study Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So based on how God has ordered His church, based on what we've seen so far, now we look at some of His instructions. And the goal is really to see one primary instruction every week. So here, if you're a note-taker, I invite you to get the worship guide out if you like to do the the fill-in-the-blanks to help follow along And we're going to look at the primary instruction to the church today out of Hebrews chapter 3. And it is this. Pay careful attention 
to the condition of your heart toward God, as well as for those God has joined to you in the fellowship. That's the instruction that the church is given. Pay really close attention to your heart toward God. Pay really close attention to the state of your heart toward God. But don't just pay attention to that for yourself, but you should pay attention to the condition of the hearts of the people around you. The people in that fellowship, that koinonia, that God has joined you to, going back to what we've already studied together. That primary instruction is found in verses 12 and 13 of Hebrews 3, which is in your notes and what Lamar read to us, this large portion of Scripture, which we're going to look at in a moment, but the primary instruction is found in verses 12 and 13. So we're going to walk through that together for just a moment. Verse 12, it starts this way, Take care, brothers. Now, In the original language, take care is one word. And that word means take care. As the ESV puts it, it means to take heed. It means to beware. It means to observe intently. And so we're told to take heed, to beware, and to observe intently. That's the instruction that's given. And the word brother there, by the way, I just want to... Mention this, that word brother can be translated brothers and sisters because it's referring not just to a brother, it's referring to anyone who's joined to the church. And so some translations like the CSB even put there, brothers and sisters. So take care, brothers and sisters, take heed, take heed, beware, observe intently what? He continues, lest there be any of you or so that there would not be any of you in any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart. That's the goal of what we're supposed to be observing intently, our heart. That's what we're supposed to beware of. That's what we're supposed to pay attention to. The object of our attention is supposed to be, consider your heart toward God. Think about where your heart is. I want you to be very, think about exactly what the Word is saying. It's not just saying, pay attention to what you're doing, Pay attention to if you're keeping the rules. Pay attention if you're having your quiet time every day. Pay attention if you're going to church or to a small group. Pay attention if you're keeping away from certain things that you're convicted over. You could be doing all of those things for very religious reasons. The command here is pay attention to your heart. Pay attention to what your heart wants. Pay attention to what your heart loves. Pay attention to what your heart believes. That's what the call is. Hebrews, many believe, was essentially a sermon. It was either a sermon that was given and then written down, or it was a sermon letter, and it was to a church. And I want you to think about what the audience of that church would have been. Very similar to what an audience in the church would be today. It would be made up of those who are a part of that church or sitting in that church but don't actually consider themselves yet to be Christians. They don't actually confess Christ. They're what we would probably in our verbiage today called, call seekers. But they are, they're in church for some reason, but they're not, they're not yet saved. And the call of the Bible to those people, consider your heart. Beware of your heart. Be careful that that there is not in you an unbelieving heart. And the, the, the call there would be, cry out and be saved. See your unbelief. See that your unbelief is what is causing evil in your life, causing you to be evil and do evil things. It's essentially from unbelief. So believe and be saved. There would also be among the church those who confess Christ but are not truly in Him, even though they say they are. So we talked about this when we talked about the picture of the vine and the branches, that there are some branches that are loosely connected to the vine. They're not actually in the vine. They're not receiving life from the vine. They're loosely attached. And this is such an important call to anyone who thinks they are in Christ, but they really aren't. 
Because what the Bible is saying is eventually the condition of your heart will be revealed and you will fall away. So look at your heart. Beware of your heart. See your unbelief and be saved. See your unbelief. It doesn't matter how long you've been in church. It doesn't matter how much Bible you know. It doesn't matter how many times you pray. What is in your heart? Do you love Jesus? Do you find Him glorious? Does He have your attention? Look in your heart and beware of unbelief. But also, the majority of the church, hopefully, would be those who are in Christ. Those who are part of the vine. And this warning is to us as much as to anyone. You can let unbelief creep in your heart. Unbelief can come into your life and it can wreck your faith. It can wreck your lives. And it is not going to come all at one time. It is going to come gradually. Slowly, gradually, you let unbelief start coming in. And slowly and gradually, that unbelief starts doing a work in your life to draw you away from God. The more unbelief comes in, the more your heart is hardened. You can lose influence with people. You can lose ministry among God's people. You can bring shame upon yourself and the gospel. And you might say, well, but I'm in Christ. David, don't you teach that if you're in Christ, you'll always be in Christ, that He preserves His people? Absolutely. I believe that. If you are in Christ, He will not cut you off. But that doesn't mean you cannot wreck your life. You can become the person described in 1 Corinthians 3 who stands before Christ at His judgment seat to find all the works of your life destroyed by the fire of His gaze as He looks at the works of your life and you can become that person who is saved but barely like someone escaping a fire. So we are warned. Pay attention to our hearts. Be careful that there is not in you an unbelieving heart. What happens if there is an unbelieving heart? It continues, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Doing what? Leading you to fall away from the living God. That is where unbelief takes you. Doubt and mistrust and unbelief in your heart pulls you away from God. And let me just say this, you're not even necessarily going to recognize its unbelief. You might find yourself no longer having the type of quiet relationship and fellowship with Jesus that you used to have reading His Word and praying. You might find that you don't have the joy in gathering with other believers that you used to have. You might find that you're, you don't feel purpose in mission the way you used to and a boldness in sharing the gospel. And you might say to yourself, well, it's this season of life. It's because I'm busy. It's because of work. It's because of these concerns. It's because of this going on or that going on. But the Bible says it's actually because of unbelief. You no longer believe you need that. You no longer believe that that fellowship is critical to your spiritual life. You no longer believe that you need to spend time with Christ. You no longer believe that you need to be bold in witness. And it is the unbelief that is pulling you away from God, not your schedule, not your season of life. It is your unbelief that leads you to fall away from the living God. That's the result. For unbelievers, for people who are loosely attached to Christ, that falling away is eventually very visible. They turn and they walk away. They leave God, they leave His people. But for believers, your religious actions might not change at all. You might still do the routine, yet your heart is far from Him. 
You're no longer relying on God. You're relying on yourself. Your falling away begins with you leaving fellowship with Jesus, time with Him and love for Him. You find yourself, rather than clinging to Him and asking for His help, you find yourself doing more and more just on your own. In your own power, relying on words and prayers that you read and prayed years ago. So what's the solution? Take care, brothers. Be careful. Beware, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that will lead you to fall away from the living God. So what's the answer? Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. The command that we are given to protect ourselves from unbelief and from falling away is not pray more, read more, worship more, although we should do all those things. But the command here, what the Holy Spirit is teaching us here, is that our protection from unbelief, from unbelief settling into our hearts, is the daily exhortation from other believers. That what is God's design in the church to prevent you and prevent me from finding unbelief in our hearts, leading us to fall away from God, is all of these people around you and all of the people that call this church home that are not with us this morning and their exhortation in your life and your exhortation in their life. And when we don't have that, when we are not daily living in that exhortation where we're encouraging and helping each other in the faith, we are cutting ourselves off and we are endangering ourselves spiritually because God has designed us to be dependent, not just on Him, but to be dependent upon each other. This is not just religious practice. We don't just come to church because it's a good thing to do. Pastors of this church don't encourage you to gather together and get together because, because we want to be able to talk about how many people come to church or how many people get in small groups. It is our health to do this. And it is a danger to our spiritual health to not do it. That's how God has ordered things. Remember, we're not just throwing instructions out. We're going back to the first three weeks. It's how God has ordered us to be in fellowship with one another, to be in the vine together, to be one body made up of different parts. And if one part is not healthy, the whole body is not healthy. So we exhort one another every day. That's our call. Unlike Cain, we are our brother's keeper. We are our sister's keeper. We should watch over our own hearts, but we should also watch over the hearts of those that we are joined to in fellowship. The spiritual health of this whole group, the whole church is contingent upon all of the body exhorting one another away from unbelief and toward more reliance on Christ. And he finishes up saying, all of this to be done that that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Here's one of the biggest problems that a lot of us face. This is going to be my problem. I think it would be the problem of a lot of us in this room. I look around the room. A lot of us are mature believers. We've walked with Jesus for a very long time. Here's one of the biggest problems we face. We convince ourselves everybody else needs daily help from other believers except us. I, I can be a help to people. I need to exhort people. I need to encourage people. I, I'm, I mean, I'm all right. I'm not being deceived. Well, guess what? <laughs> it's like the whole point of deception is you, you don't actually know it. Like that's, that's the whole reason we use the word deception, deceive, because you don't know when you're being deceived. Sin is crouching at my door the way it is at yours. And I need exhortation as much as anybody else in this room does. And that is true for all of us. 
We don't think sin is a problem for us, and that's part of what sin wants to accomplish. So that's the instruction for today. That's the big picture. Pay attention to the condition of your heart toward God as well as for those that God has joined to you in the fellowship. Now, I want us to take a few minutes. I want us to look at this in the context it was originally given. I don't want us to just pull the two verses out. I want us to look at what is going on in, in this instruction. What is going on in Hebrews 3? Because we can learn a lot by placing ourselves in this passage when it was originally given, when this sermon was originally given. So if you have a Bible, I hope you do it. If you'll grab that, open it up, go to Hebrews chapter 3, because we're going to look at some verses that are not in your handout. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, we would love to give you one today as a gift. They're on the back table. You can pick one up, put your name in it. That's your gift from our church. Hebrews chapter 3. Verse 1 starts off this way. Therefore, holy brothers, again, it, it is probably better translated there, holy brothers and sisters. You who share in a heavenly calling. Just want to pause there and tell you that's the fellowship we talked about three weeks ago. That's the vine that we talked about two weeks ago. That's the body of Christ that we talked about last week. All of you who are fellow partakers in this heavenly calling, those of you in the body of Christ, those of you in the vine, consider Jesus. That's the exhortation in verse 1. Consider Jesus. Literally, look to Jesus. Observe Jesus. He's the apostle and the high priest of our confession. He was faithful to Him who appointed Him, just as Moses was also faithful in all of God's house. Verse 1 says, church, look to Jesus. Abide in Jesus. Remember that. Remember what we talked about two weeks ago. Be the branch in the vine. Remain in the vine. Every day, fellowship with Christ. Stay with Him. Cling to Him. Pray to Him. Read His Word. Spend time with Him. He will be there with you. He will meet you. If you go walk and pray, if you go to a closet and pray, if you pray in your car, He will meet you. He will be there with you. So spend time with Him. Look to Him. If you say, I'm having trouble being faithful to God. Christ was faithful to God. Look to Him. He was faithful to God in all that God gave Him to do, and He will give you His life. And then verses 3 through 6, we get this really almost kind of odd to us passage that starts talking about Moses and Jesus and comparing the two of them and tells us that Jesus is greater than Moses, which we would certainly say that is true. The builder of all things is God. Jesus is God. Jesus has built all things. Moses was so important to the people of God in the Old Testament, but Jesus is greater than Moses. So what is this about? Why is the writer of Hebrews spending this time saying Jesus should be counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Why is he talking this way? Well, here's the context. What apparently is happening to the church that this is being written to, which we believe to be Jewish Christians primarily, who've come out of their old religion of Judaism, they've turned to Christ, but if you read the whole sermon, what appears to be happening is that this group of Christians have become dull of hearing. They're not listening to God the way they used to. They're not even getting together the way they used to, because there's an instruction in Hebrews we'll see next week. Don't stop meeting together, because apparently that's what was happening. They're pulling away from God. And many of them, apparently, in the midst of their troubles, their trials, their afflictions, their persecution, many of them are saying, maybe Judaism was better. Maybe Christianity isn't what I need to give myself to. Maybe Jesus is not really God and not really great. Maybe I need to go back to my old way, my old religion. By the way, not just to my old way of life and sin, but to my old way of belief. And so what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is, no, Jesus is greater than that. Jesus is greater than that old religion. Jesus is greater, as great as Moses was. 
Jesus is greater. As great as the covenant was that Moses gave, the covenant of Jesus is greater. Don't fall away. Don't turn back. Christ is greater. Here's how we put ourselves there. If you were to turn back, what would you turn to? If you were to go back, where would you go? It might not be to another religion. At least not one that has a name. Maybe you would go back to just being and living in your own religion. Doing what you want to do. Living as your own God. What would you go back to? Whatever it is, this sermon in Hebrews 3 is saying, Christ is greater. Don't go back. Don't turn around. Keep going. As a matter of fact, if you look at verse 7, that's exactly what he says. Actually, we'll back up to verse 6. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are His house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So He says, you are the household of God. You are the body of Christ. Hold on. Don't let go. Keep persevering in the faith. Hold on to your confidence. What does that mean? Your confidence in your salvation. Keep relying on Jesus. Keep believing in Jesus. Keep being assured that this is the way. And hold on to your boasting. Be proud of Jesus. Be proud of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of it. Don't hide who you are. Don't hide what you believe. Keep being proud of it. You remember when you first got saved, the energy, the excitement, you told people about Christ. Hold on to that. Even if you're persecuted for it. Even if, even if you are brought to trial of some kind because of it. Hold on and don't let go. Don't go back in your affliction. Hold fast your confidence. That's the picture of this sermon. And then in verse 7, he says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and then from the rest of verse 7 all the way through verse 11, he quotes Psalm 95. Half of the psalm. And I just want to point out to you that the writer of Hebrews says that the writer of Psalm 95 was the Holy Spirit. And it is a reminder to us that although God used mortal men to write His Scriptures, we're not exactly sure who wrote Psalm 95, some believe David, but whoever wrote it down, the author was the Holy Spirit. The psalms, the Bible, they carried the the authority of God. So he quotes Psalm 95. And here's the part he quotes. I'm going to read all the way through 11. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. And as I swore in my wrath, they shall never enter my rest. So what's he talking about? He's bringing something from the Old Testament and he's putting it before the church in the New Testament and he is saying, learn from these people. So what's he talking about? He's talking about the generation of people that God brought out of Egypt. Do you remember the story? Do you remember the people of God enslaved in Egypt and God brought them out through Moses and all the plagues brought upon upon Pharaoh, and then he took them through the Red Sea into the wilderness, and they lived happily ever after. You remember that story? That's not how it went. Remember? Because what happened when they get in the wilderness? What did happen after they saw all of God's miracles in Egypt? After they saw God deliver them out of Egypt and through the Red Sea and into the wilderness, going to the land of promise? What happened? Well, as it turns out, if you find yourself in the middle of a desert land, some days it's hard. Even on the way to the promised land, some days it's difficult. Some days it's hot. Some days you 
are thirsty and you don't see water right away. Some days you're hungry and, and you're fed from heaven, manna, bread, but you don't always want bread. Sometimes you want something else. And so there's just a lot of difficulties along the way. And so what happened to this group of people? They grumbled against God. They didn't believe Him. Every time something got hard, they said, where's God? Why is this happening? They didn't run to Him and say, God, provide like You did yesterday. You provided yesterday. You provided for us in the past. You brought us out of Egypt. We saw it. We know You're going to provide. So God, we trust You. That's not what happened. They said, where are you, God? Why are you doing this again? They would go to Moses and say, why did He bring us out here to die? Let us go back. Eventually, they get to the land of promise. And 12 spies are sent in. And 10 of those spies came back and said, the land is just like God told us, but we can't have it. It's too great. The people there are too big. The enemies will overrun us and they will, they will kill us. Why did God bring us here to the brink of the promised land just to kill us all? Let us go back to Egypt, Moses. They wanted it so bad, they said, if you don't, we'll stone you. Two men, two spies, said, no, it's, it's a good land and God will give it to us if we'll go. But the people, the people listened to the ten spies and God said, none of you will ever see this land. Only these two men, Joshua and Caleb, who said, we can have the land, only they will see it. You will die in this wilderness. And for 40 years they wandered. And they did not enter His rest. It was their children and grandchildren who experienced it. Why is the author of Hebrews telling us this in the midst of telling us not to turn back? Because he is saying that if you turn around from your faith in Christ, if you let unbelief creep in your heart and you fall away from the living God, you too will not have rest. What happened to these people will happen to you. Don't turn back. Persevere. Keep going. Believe in Jesus. Hold on to Him. Trust Him. When things get hard, go to Him and be reminded of how Jesus has provided for you so many times and trust He will do it again. Don't grumble and just ask where He is and why He's bringing you to these hard places to leave you alone. He's not left you alone. Trust in Him. Hold on to your belief and stay in His rest. And one day, you will enter into His presence for all of eternity. That's the picture. And the writer of Hebrews, is telling two Jewish Christians a story they would know well. And he's saying, don't turn back. And then he gives them the warning. Take care. Beware, brothers and sisters, so there's not in any of you that same type of unbelieving heart that was in the Jewish people who asked to go back to Egypt, leading you to fall away from the living God. Be careful that that heart, it could be. That heart could be yours. You are not above it. It doesn't matter your experiences and how long you've walked with the Lord and how much you know. It could happen to you. So beware of your heart. He's not telling us this to be afraid. What is He telling us this so we'll do, so that we will be motivated as the people of God to stay together and exhort each other. To be the Joshua and the Caleb's, to be those two spies that say, no, we will make it, you will make it. You will be okay, God will come through, keep going, do not give up. Exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That none of you might look back and say, Egypt was better and that's where I'm going to head. Be careful. Keep each other. 
You are your brother's and sister's keeper. Remember what we talked about when we talked about fellowship. This is not primarily about friendship and, 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 and who we like and what personalities make sense to us. This is primarily about the people that God has placed in church with you, in a body with you. How do you know you're in the right church? Look around. This is the one you're in. This is the one He's placed you in. So this is the people. And you're responsible to them and they're responsible to you. You might say, well, but they're not like me. The fact they're not like you may be exactly what helps them have the insight they need into your life to keep you, to encourage you, to exhort you. Verse 14, For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. The greatest and final proof of your salvation is that you persevere to the end. That you, you're holding on to the end. And the people around you have a role to play in that. And you have a role to play in other people's lives. You have a role to play in keeping others in the faith. What causes you to want to pull away from God? For some of us, it might be prosperity. Things are just going really well. I just Things are good, and I just tend to shrink back when that happens. But for most of us, it's probably affliction. It's probably trial. It's probably difficulty. It's probably long days at work. It's probably our boss not treating us right. It's probably worries about money. It's probably fretting over what we're going to do next week, next month, next year. It's probably not feeling great. And we, we get in our trials and we, we just we start pulling away some from Jesus. And we don't call it unbelief. But the Bible does. We're not believing that we need Him and that He'll provide and that we're going to hold on to Him what causes you to pull away? What will bring you back? What will keep you in the faith is the exhortation of other believers. And even if you right now in your heart just say, "Ah, I, look, I know that's what the Bible says. I just don't know if that works for me. Well, you know what? It does. But you have a role in someone else's life. God is saying, I placed you here calls you by name. I placed you here. Exhort your brothers and sisters. You are their keeper. And if you are not exhorting others and you're not putting yourself in a position to do that, what you're saying to God is no. No. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Man, just that statement. If you hear His voice, not everyone may hear His voice. If you do, if you hear it now, don't harden your hearts. Look to Christ. Cling to Christ. Don't do what the Jewish people did in the Old Testament. And then he wraps it up here. For, those, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all of those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was He provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did He swear they would not enter His rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. I just want you to notice what it says there in verse 18. In verse 18 it says, they did not enter His rest because they were disobedient. In verse 19 it says, they did not enter His rest because of unbelief. He's not contradicting Himself. Clinging to Christ in belief is obedience to the Gospel. How do you obey the Gospel? You cling to Jesus. How do you disobey the Gospel? You don't believe. Unbelief creeps in and you pull back from Christ. Unbelief and disobedience are, simul, uh, are, are presented simultaneously. They're the same thing. 
So, big picture Hebrews 3. Be careful. Be warned. You could have an evil, unbelieving heart in you. You will be tempted, especially in affliction, to not trust God, to let unbelief creep in. That's a danger for all of us, immature and mature. Beware your heart, not just your acts. You can comfort yourself by saying, well, I'm doing good things. I'm still doing all the things that I used to. I'm doing my Bible reading plan. I'm at church every Sunday. I'm serving on a team. And all of that could be masking an unbelieving heart. Look at your heart. Sin wants to deceive you. Sin wants to take you back somewhere and wreck your faith. Here's the remedy. Every day, the faithful exhortation of other Christians. Alright, so Agape, the culture of this church, in me presenting to you something, I want every week for us to get out of this series an instruction. Here is part of what our culture should be. All of us in this room, all of us hearing this message, all of us who call this church home, seeking to exhort other believers... And us seeking to exhort other believers and us letting people exhort us. That's, that's the picture. So what makes that fruitful in this church? And that's what I want to end with today is this little graph that I have in your outline. I want us just to think about what makes exhortation fruitful, what makes it unfruitful. By the way, let me just define exhortation for you. It is a nice, robust word that can mean encouragement. It can mean persuading people, almost like begging them. It can mean comforting someone. And it can also mean admonishing them, warning them. So when you exhort someone, sometimes you're going to be encouraging them. Sometimes comforting them. Sometimes trying to persuade them. Sometimes warning them. So what makes it fruitful? In your we got like two columns. One, what makes it fruitful, and then what makes it unfruitful. So, top left, what makes exhortation fruitful in our lives is a receptive heart. Receiving, like having a heart that says, I want this. I want to be encouraged. I want to be comforted. I want to be persuaded. I want to be admonished if I need to. A receptive heart that will receive it. A softened heart. Here's the thing. Church, you can't soften your own heart. But Christ can. So stay close to Jesus in fellowship and He will soften your heart and make it ready to receive the exhortation of other believers. Now, what makes exhortation unfruitful in the right-hand column is a hardened heart. If you have a hard heart or someone that you're talking to does, it, it's like... It's like throwing stuff against a wall. It's not going to get in very easily anyway. What causes a hard heart? I said you can't soften your own heart, but you can harden your heart. What hardens our heart? One thing that hardens our heart is every time we hear God speak and we don't listen. When we hear God speak to us through a song, through a podcast, through a Bible verse, through our reading time, through a prayer, through a preacher, through another believer, and then we say, ah, oh, okay, but then we don't listen and we don't follow through. Every time that happens, we're, we run the risk of hardening our heart. That's what the passage says. If today you hear His voice, don't harden your hearts. How could you harden your hearts? By hearing His voice and walking away from it, not doing what He says. Today, if you hear His voice, don't harden your hearts. Why? Because you might not hear it tomorrow. Because your heart may be so hard tomorrow, or you may be with Christ tomorrow, and you don't have the opportunity to listen again. What makes exhortation fruitful? Middle, left. A great affection for Jesus makes exhortation fruitful. Listen, let me just say this. Nobody gets up, almost guaranteed this, none of you get up in the morning, grab a cup of coffee, start planning your day, and say, Lord, if I could ask one thing of you, would you please let someone come to me today and correct me? I, I, God, I, I want that. Like I, I'm looking forward to it. 
Our flesh says, no, I don't want to be corrected. Let me tell you what would cause me to want to listen to another dad in this room who comes to me and challenges me on my parenting. Not my pride, my love for my kids. If I love my children, I want to be the best dad I can. And so if there's another dad in this church who is wise, and they come to me and they say, I, I just want to, I want to get you to think about something. Everything in me may go, oh, I got six kids. I, I got, I've been doing this for a while. Like I, I, that's how you do things, not how I do things. That might be my pride. But my love for my kids would say, I, I want to hear what you have to say. Okay, if you love Jesus, the more you love Him, the more you want to be like Him, the more you will be open to people who encourage you, who persuade you, who comfort you, and who challenge you. And on the other side, what makes ex exhortation unfruitful is a low affection for Jesus. When we're not spending time with Him and, and our heart's desire is not for Christ and to know Him and to make Him known, then we're really not going to value people who are trying to help us walk closely with Him. Doesn't that make sense? If we kind of just have a kind of a careless attitude toward whether or not we walk with Christ, then it's really not going to make a big difference to us if people are trying to help us walk with Him. The more you're spending time with Jesus and loving Him, the more you want to be like Him, the more you will want people in your life to say, yes, help me, encourage me, equip me, yes, correct me, because I want to love Jesus more. And then finally, bottom left, what makes exhortation fruitful? Good experience with correction. Having good experiences with correction. What does that mean? First of all, I want you to think of correction here not as being reprimanded. I want you to think about it like course correction. You're on the narrow path that Jesus has said walking with Him is going to be narrow. And, and every day, you just some days you're just drifting a little bit, left or right. Something happens and you just start getting off course a little bit. And God has designed for people in this church to come alongside of you, send you a verse that day, text it to you. They don't even know why they're doing it. They were reading that verse that morning and they thought of you and they texted it to you. Or you come to their mind and they pray for you. And then they text you to say, I'm praying for you today. Or maybe you're in a small group with them. Or you come to church and you hear something from God's Word through that person. It brings you back on course. Maybe they sit you down and they say, I'm worried about you. Maybe they ask you questions. Isaac and I were talking about this the other night, about just like being in people's lives to say, how's your fellowship with Jesus? How, how, how's things been this week walking with Christ? Do we, do we ask each other those questions? Do we ask each other? Do we hold back from asking someone that question because we think it'd be weird? Do we hold back because if I ask them that, they're immediately going to ask it back to me and I don't really want to have to deal with that right now? <laughs> but when you've had good experiences, when you can look at your life and you can say, man, people are constantly keeping me on course. Jesus is helping me through other people. I spend time with that person, it always resets my heart. I, I, I get a text from them, I call them, I go out with them, it always helps me. When you've had good experiences like that, you say, I want more of that. Bottom right, what makes it unfruitful? Not bad experience with correction. If you wrote that, scratch it out. No experience with correction. None. What do I mean by that? I mean this church. It's unfruitful when we don't have experience with people bringing us back on course because we're not doing this for one another. Because we're not asking each other those questions and people are not asking it of us. So we don't have the experience that we need to see how good and fruitful it can be. You might have expected me to say bad experiences because maybe some of you have had bad experiences with people wanting to correct you. 
I've had people say that to me before. I, you know, they, they, were, they were saying things to me. They're such a hypocrite. Guess what? That's all of us. Because you know what? We're not all there yet. Or we say, oh, they were trying to help me, but they went about it the wrong way. Let me just politely say, so what? Can you learn from it? Can you learn from what they said, even if they went about it the wrong way? Bad experience can sometimes still be good for you if you will listen. The problem is no experience. The problem is when we don't do this for each other. When we don't put ourselves in a position to receive that from other people. So church, you are your brothers and sisters keeper. And they are yours. And that is how God designed it. We are dependent on Him and we're dependent on each other and this type of fellowship is a spiritual necessity. Every single one of us in this room, we're going to face temptations to not believe and we need exhortation from other believers. And so God's plan for us is that we would spur each other on and we can't do that if we pull away from each other. We can't do that if we don't engage with one another. If we don't come together as a church on the Lord's Day, if we don't go to small groups, if we don't have time with each other, if we don't go get coffee, if we don't text each other, if we don't, if we don't go spend time with one another, call one another up, engage with one another, if we don't have these conversations, all of those things we should be doing. If we only stay in friendship mode, like where we hang out together a lot, but we don't ever talk about anything spiritual. We make ourselves feel good. Do you have fellowship in the church? Yes, I do. I, I go out with that family in the church all the time, and I spend time with that family in the church all the time. Are you talking about Jesus, though? I'm not pointing you away from having friends and doing things together. Do that, absolutely. But if you're not going deep with one another, if you're not talking to one another about your walks with Christ, it's not exhortation. Get in each other's spiritual lives. Ask questions. Speak up if you're worried about something. That's where I'm ending. Speak up if you're worried about something in someone's life. And church, listen, don't be offended when someone does that. If there's someone in the church that just has a critical spirit and they're just trying to cause trouble and always point out other people's flaws, the elders of the church should know about that and deal with it. But please, oh please, oh please, if somebody comes to you because they're worried about your walk with Jesus and they say something to you, don't be offended by that. They're doing what God has told them to do. And it is for your health that they do it. 